The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1961, the UN Secretary-General, Dag Hammarskjöld, was attempting to mediate in a crisis in the Congo when his aircraft crashed in the jungle. Was it an accident or was it murder? And if the latter, then who might have been responsible? In his new book, Operation Mortha, the journalist Ravi Samaya sifts through the evidence in an attempt to solve one of the most enduring mysteries of the Cold War. He spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. So um, first off, Ravi, what actually drew you into this mystery? I was working nights at the New York Times and uh, I was just kind of reading into strange and interesting stories uh, because the New York Times has a fabulous archive of, of, you know, old journalism you can look into that you can't really get to any other way. Um, And somehow I stumbled across this story and I think one of the first things I found was... um, was that little brief article in which Harry Truman, who's a, a former president, as you know, 
had sort of said to reporters that he felt Hammerfeld had been killed. That was the day after he died. Uh, and once you find a thing like that, you can't really help but be drawn further into it. You have a figure like Harry Truman, who, you know, is one of my favourite presidents. He's, he's not known for being a dishonest man. And uh, if he says a thing like that, you you kind of feel duty-bound to uh, to look into it further. And then I found the previous investigations. I found the UN investigations. I found, uh, you know, details and records of the Rhodesian investigation and... As soon as you read those reports, you see there are so many holes in them and so many questions spring to your mind. And I, I guess I kind of just started answering them and then I'd written a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you say this is different to a, a lot of so-called conspiracy theories in that the there is no, I suppose there's no coherent official story and what there is doesn't really hold water. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean... To be fair to the people who put together those reports, it was a very different time and a very different moment. Uh, aviation in, in the 60s wasn't like aviation now where there's neat dots on a air traffic controller's screen all the time and, you know, there's radar and monitoring and you pretty much know where any plane is at any given moment. In the 60s, especially in Africa, it was a bit, you know, the Wild West. It was just people flying where and when they wanted to and it's a big place. And so, you know whether by accident or design, those reports are, they're pretty incomplete. They leave out big chunks of evidence that I think that the authors found inconvenient, which I think is not a great starting point for a comprehensive investigation. Just to give some context to this story, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Congo crisis, which is the backdrop to the events in your book. Sure. So, uh, in the late 19th century, uh, the Belgian king, Leopold II, decided he absolutely had to have a colony. Uh, and he kind of went around the world colony shopping, as it were. Uh, and eventually, through complicated means, he ended up uh, on the Congo. Uh, and Belgium seized control of it in the late 19th century and presided over one of the most horrific colonial uh, regimes that you can imagine. Tens of millions of Congolese died of uh, exhaustion or, or murder or sickness. Uh, and essentially, Leopold's aim was to extract as much of the Congo's mineral wealth as he could for... It wasn't even for Belgium, honestly. It was for himself, for his personal fortune. Uh, and in the years after that era, it sort of settled into a kind of apartheid in the Congo where, where the white European uh, colonialists had a superior social status to the black Congolese. Of course, that's not sustainable. Uh, and in starting in 1959 and into 1960, they essentially rose up against their, their old colonial masters and demanded democracy. Uh, at that point, the army mutinied, the Congolese army, which was made up of primarily black Congolese citizens. Um, and it sort of broke out into the beginnings of a civil war where there was lots of retribution from the black Congolese against the white colonialists. And the white colonialists fled to a place called Katanga, which is the most southern region of the Congo. And also it's most mineral rich. It's where the uranium for the Manhattan Project came from. It's uh, where the majority of copper and cobalt were. And they seceded with the support of the mining companies that have been extracting money from the Congo uh, and with the support of Belgium, it, it made its own country, Katanga, under its own leader, a, a guy called Moise Chambé. Uh, and the Congo as a nation couldn't really survive without the revenues that Katanga supplied it. 
And so the central government wanted Katanga back. Katanga wanted to be separate. And there you have the ingredients for what is called the Congo crisis, but could in fact be called the first Congo civil war or the first modern Congo civil war. And then how and why did the UN become involved in this? And was this typical for UN actions at the time? Well, so we have to remember we're in the throes of the the beginning of the Cold War when it was still sort of under the surface, but was very, very, very fevered. Uh, And so every international conflict became a proxy conflict for this conflict. And the Congo was no different. Uh, Britain and America considered it strategically vital. Of course, it was uh, the source of the world's richest uranium uh, and of cobalt, which was used for important guidance systems in, in nuclear missiles. Uh, And Russia, for similar reasons, found it vital. It was also, its placement is right in the middle of Africa. It's bordered by nine nations. And so it was seen as strategically key. And so essentially the world got pulled into it. And and Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the second UN Secretary General, came to realise that this had the potential, this conflict, to to become kind of a a sparking point for a a third world war or or at least an unpleasant proxy war. Uh, And so... The Congolese government had asked for help, and uh, he readily agreed to send in tens of thousands of, of UN peacekeepers. And But I suppose that then put the UN on one side of a civil war. Was was there quite a backlash to that? Well, I mean, I think Hamakhov was trying very, very hard not to take a side. He, he felt that the Congolese people ought to have whatever it was that they wanted, and what they wanted was the chance to rule themselves. Uh, And he felt that was the only way that the country could function. And he felt that in the midst of so much global double dealing, uh, it was kind of the UN's job to protect the small country, to protect the country that that didn't have an army of spies or even a literal army uh, going around the world doing its bidding. Uh, What happened essentially is everyone hated him. The Russians hated him. They thought he was an agent of the West. The West kind of hated him because they thought he was uh, ushering communism into the Congo by supporting the democratically elected Congolese leader, who was a guy called Patrice Lumumba. Um, And he made himself extremely unpopular. And the UN peacekeepers were essentially uh, a target of ire for everyone on the streets. And from your reading of him, what kind of a man was Hammerhold? So what drew me to him was that he was kind of an eccentric and an idealist. Uh, and, he, and he kind of had these wide-ranging interests that you don't often see in modern politicians. We associate them more with that era. He was a, you know, a poet and a photographer, and he numbered John Steinbeck among his friends and Barbara Hepworth. And, you know, he was really a man of letters. He spoke five languages. Uh, he was uh, quite religious, and he started out as quite Christian, but he, he kind of developed a sort of pantheistic view of religion. He was kind of more spiritual than anything else. Uh, And it's always very interesting to me when an idealistic character can survive or even thrive in the middle of cynics. Um, And I just thought that was such an interesting, an interesting dilemma that he faced when you're faced with among the most vicious moments in, in modern history, to have a guy who's willing to do the right thing or to try and do the right thing is, is incredibly interesting. Uh, And so I guess that from the sidelines, which is where you are when you're reporting a book like this, you kind of cheer when you see someone taking the side of of the Congolese in this. You cheer when you see someone who's trying not to be expedient, but to do the right thing. So could you please 
tell us a little bit about the events of the night he died and what people at the time thought happened. So essentially, the the Congo crisis had reached, you know, an even greater crisis point. Uh, the UN had tried to intervene and and reunite the Congo. It had tried to uh, deal with white supremacist mercenaries that Katanga had hired to try and keep it separate from the rest of the Congo. Uh, and it had sort of backfired or, or it had escalated the conflict anyway. Uh, and he was under a great deal of pressure. And so he was flying from the Congolese capital, which at the time was called Leopoldville and is now called Kinshasa, uh, to a place called Ndola for a, a sort of final ceasefire summit with the president of Katanga, which was the region that has seceded, a, a guy called Moisi Shombe. Uh, and he had taken off from the airport in Leopoldville at about four o'clock in the afternoon uh, uh, on September the 17th, 1961. And he hadn't told anyone where he was flying to exactly for security reasons. There were Katangese warplanes circling in the sky. It was a very hostile environment. He was a very hated figure. Uh, America and Britain wouldn't let him have a fighter plane escort to protect him. So his only protection really was secrecy. So he'd taken off amid all of this secrecy from the airport in Leopoldville. Uh, and his pilot had flown a strange route. No one knew quite where he was. And so to some extent, his plane, to the observers anyway, appeared over over the south of the Congo near Katanga. Uh, at around, you know, between 11 o'clock and, and midnight on September the 17th. Uh, and then the official account essentially says at that point that the pilot had made an approach to the airport, misjudged something and, and just crashed into the ground. Um, and what we know for sure is the wreck was discovered 15 hours later and of the 16 people on board, 15, including Hamakold, were killed at the site of the accident. One survived briefly for a little longer uh, but once you start digging beneath the surface, as people did at the time and as I've done subsequently, you find that there were so many eyewitnesses who saw an account that didn't match that. I mean, that account was incredibly convenient for everyone involved. It allowed them to tie a neat bow on top and say, how sad this great man was killed. We can carry on as we'd carried on and we'll give him the Nobel Peace Prize, which he won the year afterwards. And that's an end to it. But so many people on the ground saw a second plane in the sky or they saw, you know, fire or an explosion uh, on Hammerfeld's plane, which, of course, is not consistent with a controlled crash, as it were. Uh, and the final survivor, a man called Harold Julien, he was alive for a day or two after the crash. Uh, and he described an explosion and what he called sparks in the sky. And it said that Hammerfeld had told the plane to go back, which, you know, these things aren't consistent with a plane drifting gradually into the ground out of error. And that's the essential dilemma of the story. You know, is the official account correct? Or are all of these other accounts and investigations, do all of these accounts and other investigations hold any water? So if it's possible that this was, say, a deliberate act, at least to some extent, who would have been the main contenders for people who might have wanted to kill him? So I saw this a lot like a giant Agatha Christie mystery because the Congo was absolutely stuffed with nefarious characters from around the world. At the time, uh, the CIA's operation in the Congo was its most expensive ever. It was hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and they spared no expense and they considered any measures worthwhile to retain the Congo 
in sort of a, a capitalist sphere rather than what they considered a, a communist sphere. There's lots of evidence that that America and Britain, who were also on the ground in, in great numbers with uh, with SIS or MI6, uh, had a hand in the murder of the elected Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba. Uh, they certainly had assassins on the ground and they certainly were doing very nefarious things. The Russians had an enormous quantity of spies on the ground. The West Germans had an enormous quantity of spies on the ground. And Katanga had sort of put together a... a a magnificent seven or a dirty dozen of the world's white supremacist mercenaries. After World War II, of course, you had a lot of fascists and white supremacists who didn't quite know what to do with themselves. And they were kind of going around in search of a cause. And of course, this cause, which was uh, a kind of a, a black native Congolese population seeking democracy and seeking to overthrow a, a European colonial regime, this was irresistible to them. So they had flown in in, in their thousands uh, to try and protect Katanga from, from the reaches of the central government. Uh, and all of these people, to some greater or lesser extent, disliked Hamakul. They disliked the UN and they did not want to see the Congo reunited. On top of it all, you had this uh, mining company called Union Minier, which had been extracting all the minerals from Katanga with really sweetheart deals. It it took in the vast chunk of the profits and, and very little went back to the country. If the country was reunited, it would have to renegotiate those deals and on what were overtly going to be less good terms. And so in a sense, they were supporting the Katangese and funding the mercenaries and even providing them you know, material uh, support, uh, for example, workshops and, and financing to continue their fight. So you have this collection of suspects uh, each of whom had expressed a hostility to Hammerfeld, each of whom had some incentive for the Congo not to be reunited. Uh, and then once you start matching up those motives with the events of that night, a different picture emerges than the one you see in the official accounts. Now, subsequent to his death, there have been a number of separate investigations into what happened. And it doesn't seem like any of them have yet really got to the bottom of it. Why, why do you think it's been so difficult to piece together what actually happened? So I think we know a lot more than it seems like we know. From the very beginning, from almost before the first official account had come out, there were really expert investigators, including some of those I detail in the book. Uh, a guy called Bo Virving, who was a trained pilot who unearthed all these extra witness accounts and, and sort of realised that the official account wasn't uh, cohesive and came up with his own account. What he would do was kind of plot where all the witnesses were and plot where all the planes were on transparent sheets of plastic and then lay them over each other. And when he did, they kind of magically revealed a potential path for an attack aircraft. Uh, and gradually, over a series of investigators, they sort of zeroed in on on a thesis, which was that there was another plane in the sky. Uh, and without those investigators, we would know almost nothing. We would only have the official accounts. So there is this whole big body of evidence which points in another direction uh, entirely. But as you point out, it's sometimes a little inconclusive. And I think that's just because it's decades ago. It's so long ago. It's, you know, what is it, 70 years. But uh, it's an era ago, you know. It's before cell phones. It's before widespread communications. It's before widespread radar in, in Africa. It's just a hazy different time. It's like looking, you know, a long way back through history. So I think that's firstly one factor. The second was that the Congo crisis was described as nearly uniquely chaotic 
you know, I describe it as kind of slapstick tragedy. There were lots of very strange things happening. Very out of the ordinary things became very ordinary. Very surreal things became totally normal. If I looked into occasions on which uh, other participants in that war had died, often they just thought whatever hap- was happening was really silly until it wasn't and they were dead. Or on other occasions, they felt like a situation was really dangerous and it turned out to have been silly all along. So it was very hard to very hard to sift fact from fiction, even on the ground in the moment. Uh, and of course, that doesn't get easier with time. And from reading the book, you see that so many people in subsequent years have come forward to say that they might have been involved or they know someone else was involved. And these stories clearly don't all tally. So does that tell us something about the reliability of witnesses in general? I mean, that's a fascinating question. I think when you get into uh, reporting, you presume that if you walk up to someone in the street and say, what did you see? They can give you a really good answer and they can't. If you ask someone what, what someone looked like, the first word they will always say is normal. They looked normal. Uh, and it's quite an art, actually, to to, to interview people and to, to, to figure out what it was that they saw as opposed to what they interpreted, for example. I think one of the errors that the official reports made is that they were kind of lazy with witnesses. You know, they sort of just got the surface answers and, and, and happily moved on. So essentially... What you tend to find is that one person's account is clouded by both their perspective, literally from where they were, and their perspective as a person. This was a very politically charged moment. It's not so dissimilar to now. And people's accounts tend to, they take into, they take into sort of, uh, people's views of what happened take into account their political views or, or kind of what they would have wanted to happen or what they think might have happened. And sifting all that is really difficult. What I found as I went through all of them, and I must have gone through dozens, I mean, up towards a 100 of different witness accounts and and people who say they saw or heard a fragment of this, is they start to rhyme. They start to all be a little different. They start to all have a different, you know, putative motivation behind them. But they start to overlap in a really interesting way. And I think that's where you can find maybe not the truth, but certainly some directional guidance toward what the truth is. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Usually when you're running out of road with the stories, you dig, you find thinner and thinner evidence. In this case, as I dug and and as the UN dug further, the UN is still doing its own investigations, uh, the evidence gets hairier and hairier and bigger and bigger and weirder and weirder. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. 
Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Now, we won't give away the conclusion to your book, but you do put forward a theory of what you believe happened in the end. How confident would you say you are that this is the, as much as we can say, the true account of the events? So when I first started writing this book, I was convinced something dodgy had happened. And then halfway through, I had a crisis because I thought, oh, my God, what if it was an accident and I'm writing a book about a giant accident? That would be the most boring conclusion. But I would have felt duty bound to follow it all the way through. Uh, And then just the weight of witness statements, just the weight of accounts, which they they vary, but they all have a similar cast to them. Uh, And they all point in one direction and toward one set of suspects and toward one method. And... As I dug, usually when you're running out of rope with a story, as you dig, you find thinner and thinner evidence. In this case, as I dug, and, and as the UN dug further, the UN is still doing its own investigations, uh, the evidence gets hairier and hairier and bigger and bigger and weirder and weirder. Every new report that comes out, every piece of evidence that 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 I come across points in a more nefarious direction than previously. Uh, the only way I would say at this point to to take the investigation any further than it's been taken, uh, lives in the archives of the British and American governments, and in fact, in some other governments around the world too, maybe Belgium, maybe South Africa, uh, where those that huge group of spies that was on the ground, we don't know what they knew, we don't know what their involvement was, we don't know where they were. Uh, they've all died, so there's no particular people to protect Uh, Both Britain and America have released embarrassing intelligence documents from that era previously. Uh, And what we think are in their archives are a couple of NSA operatives for the American National Security uh, Agency have come forward to say that they thought they heard the events of that evening while they were on duty, while they were intercepting radio communications uh, for the American government. We've never seen those transcripts. We don't know if they exist, but two people have confirmed that they heard something along those lines. Um, you had a half a dozen spies between Britain and America on the ground. We don't know what their reports said, what they what they reported back to headquarters, although we have evidence that they were reporting something similar to the witnesses who said that something dodgy had happened. Uh, and that would be that would be kind of the holy grail in this case, I think. That's what the UN is pushing for. That's what I'm pushing for. That's what uh, others are pushing for. What did this incident mean for the UN? Did it change the way it operated afterwards? So I think Hammerfeld has become kind of the archetype of what a UN Secretary General could and should be. He was idealistic. He did not take a side, which is the hardest thing to do because you're funded by these various governments. And they honestly, they they pretend they want you to do the right thing, but what they want you to do is whatever they want on any given day. Um, and he's one of the very few Secretary Generals who who managed to negotiate that. He was a very deft negotiator, a very thoughtful guy, and a very, uh, I think, a very good psychological reader of, of people. And so he was able to navigate this thicket, uh, and he kind of became what we would hope the UN would be, I would say. It wasn't just in the Congo, around the world during his his term and a bit uh, as Secretary General. Um, he was taking the role of of what a more activist UN might be. I often think of him now because... Of course, many of the issues we're facing are, are completely global. A pandemic is global. It doesn't really care what, what your national government is trying to do. It 
it's global. Uh, disinformation is global. Climate change is global. We have all these global issues that we uh, need to tackle. And sometimes I crave a figure like like Hammerhold who 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 pushed the UN into a position of of prominence at that moment, which you know I think it, it's attained rarely since. I think during some eras the UN has been approaching that role on the global stage, and in other eras, sadly, including ours now, it's sort of an afterthought. It's sort of a seen as an inconvenience, I think, by by leaders in Britain and America and elsewhere. And then on the sort of subject of Africa. What does this incident tell us about the continent at that point? So I was surprised when I was reporting into the history of the Congo. Uh, you know, we have this weird myth that that until white people showed up in Africa, it was, you know, mud huts. And, and it just wasn't. It was a really thriving civilization. It was... Uh, it had empires that rose and fell. It had, you know, dramas of its own. And so I was kind of surprised that we didn't know more about that. That was incredibly interesting to me. Uh, and when you look at a country like the Congo in the news now, I think you only ever see it in the headlines when something terrible has happened, when it's been struck by Ebola or there's another civil war or you're reading a harrowing story about child soldiers that you get halfway through before you skip to the sports section. And what struck me is once you understand how much trauma and pain has been inflicted on that continent uh, over the decades and and centuries, what's happening there now makes more sense. Because once you've seeded that kind of chaos, once you've seeded that kind of anger and hurt, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, so it helped me understand modern Africa, or at least the the myths of modern Africa. It helped me understand that Africa is is a very large and very culturally diverse place. Um, and that sometimes when we look at it now, we make the same error as colonialists in that we just see it as a monolith or, or a, a place that's subject to uncivilized chaos more than any other place. And it's just not. Now, I appreciate that you finished writing the book now, but are you finished with this story or are you still investigating? Absolutely not finished. Uh, I'm still investigating. It's still like an unscratched itch to some extent. Uh, there are still new things being found the whole time. Uh, it took me years and years to write this book in part because it's uh, a story that I got obsessed with and in part because new things kept happening. I think it's really picked up pace in recent years. I think the UN's new investigations uh, have really added some fuel to the fire. I think the documents the Zimbabwean government is digging up, which form the ending of my book, are incredibly interesting. Zimbabwe, as you, I'm sure, know, is is geographically uh, where a place called the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland used to be. Uh, And the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland is a very interesting place. It was sort of run in collaboration with Britain. It was on the Congolese border. Um, And lots of the nefarious activity that that Britain certainly was engaged in in Africa came through that federation. Uh, The documents from that federation have been lost or scattered or destroyed because they did a lot of strange and unpleasant things that perhaps they would have wanted forgotten. But the Zimbabwean government has started to find veins of these documents. They're scattered around the world. They're in this person's personal archive here. They're in, you know, that box under the stairs there. They're in this government archive in another place. And they're starting to find really eye-opening documents. And I'm certainly not going to stop bugging them. And I know the UN is not. Uh, And I think with a story, you can kind of feel when it's about to break. And this one feels to me like it's about to break. 
Um, okay, Ravi, I think I've gone through the questions I was going to ask you. Is there anything that you think we've, I really should have asked you about that I didn't, I didn't get around to or I didn't think of? That's a great question, which I also always ask. So I guess sort of the final note in my book is kind of a plea to the British and American governments, which I would reiterate here, to just open up their archives. I mean, if you... If you, t- if you take the darkest view of their modern behaviour, the British and American governments, you could say that uh, they've embarrassed themselves enough already. Why don't they just open their archives and and at least shine some light on a on a historical mystery while they're kind of airing all of their dirty laundry? I myself and and the UN and uh, another investigator whose whose wake we all sort of trail in, named Susan Williams, um, have been pushing for years for the for the British and American governments to just reveal whatever they have. I think I, I say in the book that I think the most basic form of justice is to have your story honestly told. Of course, at this remove, we're unlikely to get someone we can put in jail for the death of Hamachel. We're unlikely to get a villain who we can, you know, neatly blame for all of this. But I do think we can get toward the truth, even closer to the truth, or at least to an honest account. And that's what I would continue campaigning for. That was Ravi Samaya. Operation Morthor, the last great mystery of the Cold War, is out now, published by Viking. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with another lecture from our 2019 History Weekends. <laughs>